turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. And Mundo read it uh, for us this morning. So um, um, he read three. He read from 1 Peter 3 um, right the way through to verse, chapter 4 and verse 6. We're picking up this week in chapter 4 and verse 1. So um, I'll simply pray and then we'll get started. Father, I pray that as we come now again to your word, that you would enable me to to understand, to communicate, and to teach your text. Lord, I pray that I would stand out of the way of the text as much as is possible, that your spirit, who inspired it, may illuminate it for us. And that seeing your word with our eyes and hearing it in our hearts, that we might be changed by it. Where there needs to be correction, may we be corrected. Where there needs to be rebuke, may we be rebuked. May there, may there be encouragement where there needs to be encouragement. May there be hope always. And Lord, may you be glorified through the teaching of your word and the fruit that it brings. Amen. Amen. Okay. So last week, if you weren't here, oh boy, last week. Uh, last week we were delving into all sorts of mysteries and wonders um, as we went through um, from verses 18 and following. We dealt with the awkward passage concerning the spirits in prison. And long story short, the conclusions that we came to last week were simply that... Um, in history past, prior to the flood, there was this um, bizarre coupling of angelic beings and human women that produced the offspring, the Nephilim, and that this coming together, this them basically seeking to thwart the messianic mission by destroying the seed of the woman, that... Uh, but they were seeking to, as, as I say, to, to prevent Messiah from coming. And so Christ is able to preach and to proclaim to the spirits in prison, to those, those uh, angelic beings that had come to their improper abode, and he was able to proclaim to them the victory that he had, which is made clear in verse 22. Christ who's gone to heaven is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. And that then explained in verse 20, that tricky little um, phrase, uh, that uh, the eight people were brought safely through water. That they were, they were somehow saved, not despite from the water, but through the water. And the point that we were trying to emphasize last time was this, that the flood, though it was God's judgment, was also an act of God's mercy. Without the flood, there could not have been the Messiah. Without the flood, the, the world would have become a place of far greater suffering. And we likewise um, are saved uh, through the uh, the expression of baptism, it, 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 uh, it's an outworking of, of our salvation. It's an expression of our salvation. 
But, but I think that the, the saving in verse 21 that we were talking about last time is far more to do with the fact, and this is really where we need to have this context going into verse 1. It's really far more to do with the fact that, that when we get baptized, we are making a, a definite decision. We are, we are drawing a line in the sand. We're saying, from this moment forth, I want the world to know that I belong to Jesus Christ. And that because of that, and particularly in that era, because of that, there will be suffering, there will be rejection, there will be struggles. But we have been baptized, and we have made that declaration, we have made that statement that we are Christ, whatever might come. And for many of them in Peter's day, that would have been imprisonment, that would have been rejection from family, that would have been loss of all sorts of things. And we've spoken at length in this book about the importance of suffering as Christ suffered and walking as we should. And what Peter is saying here is that that act of baptism, it saves you, not in a Pauline justification by faith sense, but it saves you from a life of compromise. It's too easy for Christians today to be Christians in the shadows. To hide the fact that they're a Christian. To sort of, you know, someone you've known for 10 years says, oh, you're a Christian? I never knew. You know, you know it, not just being part of your identity, part of who you are. And what Peter wants people to be rescued from and this kind of wraps up what we were saying last time, and this leads us very nicely into our new section. But really hear this well. What Peter wanted people to be saved from, what he wanted them to be rescued from, was not from suffering. He wanted them to be rescued from compromise. We, as Christians, face, in this day and age, we face this astonishing Battle, this astonishing hurdle that we have to overcome, where we learn to care more about not compromising than we care about being comfortable. And, and honestly, I think for most people today, it's, it's just the, one of the key issues. It's one of those things we've just got to wrestle with in our minds. We've got to establish. We've got to just put down as a foundation. And then we're going to have to just come back to it again and again and again and again. Because everyone around us, the whole of the world around us, the whole of society around us says, you shouldn't be treated this way. You should be happy. There should be some self-respect, a bit of self-love. There needs to, you, need, you need to be valued. You need all of these things. You, all of these things that, that make you feel good, that make you feel happy, that make you feel comfortable, you should have that. And we pray along those lines. Lord, take away this sickness. Take away this suffering. Help us get this better job. May everything fall into place. And there's a place for that. Because God says to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. We're coming up to that verse. But nonetheless, it's, it's a very easy thing for us to just be constantly overwhelmed by us having a nicer life. And we will reframe that way of thinking into biblical terms. We will Christianize it, you know. But the truth is this. That God loves us so much that he wants us to suffer 
as his son suffered. Without sin, without reviling, without threatening. He wants us to live in such a way that in the midst of suffering we bring glory to our Savior by imitating his suffering. And he loves us too much to withhold that from us. And he loves us too much for us to try and escape from that part of our calling. It is a brutal book, isn't it? It is very hard for us today to understand these things. Well, not to understand, to accept, perhaps. So chapter 4 and verse 1. Having dealt with that, having spoken about that, you, you get that whole package from last time that, that Christ is there saying to the authorities and powers, he says, you weren't successful, you didn't win, he has now conquered sin, he has conquered death, he's above all angels and authorities and powers and spiritual beings. And therefore it says, since therefore Christ suffered in the, in the flesh. So because Christ in his body, he suffered and he had to endure and Really, this brings us back to this theme that's been running right the way from, from chapter 2, that, you know, that, that Christ, uh, he suffered and he didn't sin, he, he didn't revile, he didn't threaten, he just trusted God. And because, therefore, Christ has suffered in, suffered in his body, he says this, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, there's so much in this, but this is the command that we've really got to wrestle with, okay? We taught oh, a year or so ago through the book of Philippians, a few years ago now, through Philippians, and many of you were here for that. And the one thing that kept coming up in Philippians again and again and again was to think the same way. It was repeated multiple times in the book. It was translated in different ways, and sometimes we had to unpack it. Sometimes to think the same way was translated to feel a certain way. Sometimes it was translated to agree. But, but really, this, this idea of thinking the same way was central to the whole book of Philippians. And it really revolved around not thinking the same way as in agreeing. It's not like, oh, the pastor says this, so I have to think the same thing the pastor says. That's not what we're talking about here. Thinking the same way means thinking the same way that Christ thought. And how did Christ think? In the context of Philippians, he humbled himself. He who had created the entire universe allowed himself to become a man, to go to the cross and to die for our sins, and therefore to have the greatest humbling that can ever, be, that can ever happen. You cannot be higher and go lower. That is the greatest humiliation that anyone can ever suffer. And Christ willingly did it. Why? Because he trusted the Father. And so throughout the book of Philippians, we were encouraged to think the same way. If Christ is prepared to go from here to here, then we can go from here to here. We can consider others to be more important than ourselves. We can suffer because we're not prepared to compromise. We can let somebody else have pleasure and we can go without because it's not all about us. And we live in a world where even in Christian circles, you could be you know, mistaken to somehow think that the Bible teaches that it's all about us. There are churches that will tell you that it's all about you. 
You're the king's kids and everything should be great. And if things aren't great, you need to have more faith. And you should be, you know, comfortable and cozy and everything should be downright wonderful. And it's a nonsense and it's a lie from the pit of hell. The reality is, is that we are called to let go of ourselves. Our dreams, our wants, our desires, our passions. And we need to understand that when we do that, we are simply doing what Christ did. He set aside his majesty in heaven from eternity past to come as a man and die on the cross that we could be saved. And we're not prepared to give up our lives, our plans, our comforts. We're not prepared to endure suffering for the one who went to Gethsemane and to the cross for us. We are to think as he thought. And what's fascinating to me here in First Peter, and, and clearly Peter is aware of Paul's writings and he's aware of Philippians, and he's aware of this same way of thinking concept. But interestingly, the phrase here, same way of thinking, uses a slightly different word. Whereas Paul in Philippians focuses on the actual thoughts, you need to be thinking this way. For Peter, because of his context, he uses a word that's perhaps better translated resolve. Resolve. The idea here is that we are to arm ourselves. We are to make, be determined. We are to resolve. This is how I'm going to be. Now, arming yourself is an interesting translation here. Because when we're arming ourselves, it implies that there is a battle going on. And there really is. We need to resolve. We need to determine. We need to defend ourselves. We need to think a certain way. This is absolutely crucial as to what it means to be a Christian. Right here. I do not care if you have been brought up in the church, if you've memorized hymns, if you know your Bible trivia and you end up winning on the 22nd of February. I don't care how Christian-y you are. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to be the kind of person who is going to walk to the cross because of Christ. It means to be the sort of person who doesn't go through life pursuing one's own desires, one's own goals, one's own comfort, but is someone who is prepared to suffer even when we don't fully understand why. Because we trust God. We trust him. And so, we therefore... Because Christ suffered, we are going to arm ourselves with that same way of thinking. We're going to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Four, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God of God. Okay, difficult passage, difficult phrase. Let's attack it. Let's see what we can do here, all right? 
What it's saying is this. It's saying, for, that's giving us the reason. Why are we going to arm ourselves with this way of thinking? Why are we going to trust God in the midst of suffering? Why are we going to be prepared to endure bad government, bad masters, bad marriages? Why are we going to be prepared to live through, you know, many people, it's going to be a living hell for the sake of Christ. Why are we prepared to do that? For... Here's your reason. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, that's a funny old phrase, because when you look at that alone, it seems to suggest that suffering somehow takes away sinfulness. Now, let me just say straight off, I don't think that's what's going on in the context. There are many parts of the Bible that would seem to say something very different than that. Now, My understanding, broadly speaking, of suffering biblically, is that suffering speeds things up. Suffering magnifies. Suffering clarifies. Do you trust God? Oh, yeah, I trust God. All right, let's just throw in a huge dose of suffering, and then we'll see if you trust God. It it just magnifies what is already there. And so for some people, what suffering does is it draws them to God. Their faith, which is genuine and true, is is matured, and they're forced to, to, to do the things they say that they do, but when the rubber really hits the road, and it brings about maturity. But for other people, suffering has the exact opposite effect. For some people, suffering leads to increased bitterness. It leads to increased doubt. It leads to increased struggles. That's not to say that their faith isn't genuine. It's just simply to say that their faith isn't strong enough to handle the adversities that they face, and they're going to have to wrestle through that and and, and hopefully press on to maturity. But some people just simply don't. I've been a Christian now for, oh gosh, I worked it out the other day. I think it's about 30 years. 30 plus years, 35 years, oh gosh, I'm old, 35 years I've been a Christian, and I was a Christian in school, I was a Christian through university, and we now live in the era of social media, so we tend to keep it up to date with people better than we used to previously, and I have lost count of the number of people who I know, who I've been friends with through the course of my life, who have come up to difficult times, and the result has been essentially a life of faith that is of virtually no faith, a life that is not walking by faith, a life where Christ has been relegated to the basement of their life, where he's allowed out maybe every couple of months or something, you know, but they hide away and they they play in the world, where, where basically suffering has had a terrible effect on their lives. So I do not think that this verse is saying contextually that if we have suffered in the flesh, we've ceased from sin. What it's saying is this. Look at the next part. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Okay. So, first of all, this is in the context of Christ's suffering. Christ's suffering. He suffered and therefore we should suffer too. Okay. That's what's going on here. When Christ died, we are hopefully all familiar with the concept that he died for our sins. One of the great crimes of modern evangelicalism is the idea that this phrase, Jesus died for your sins, 
is somehow just simply a methodology of wiping out the effects of your sin. That is not the gospel. It's part of the gospel, and it's true, but it's not the gospel. It, it is not that somehow, and, and how many people have, have over the years believed this? They've, they, they're like, oh, I feel terribly guilty because of my sins, and so they come forward to some altar call, they give their life to Christ, and they're like, fantastic, my sins are forgiven. They know their sins are forgiven because the person who prayed with them and said, your sins are forgiven. So your sins are forgiven. Oh, fantastic. Jesus forgives sins. Brilliant. So next time they go out and they get drunk, and next time they go out and they steal, and next time they go out and they lie, and next time they go out and they live according to the ways of the world, they say, oh, it doesn't matter because my sins are forgiven. And the evangelical church over the last 50 years or or more, really, has been terribly guilty of this crime of promoting a cheap grace. A grace whereby, well, don't worry, you come to Jesus and all your sins are forgiven. Well, that's wonderful that your sins are forgiven, and it's true that your sins are forgiven, but that is not the gospel. The gospel is is that Christ died for our sins. He conquered sin. Not simply that we will go on sinning. Paul in Romans 6 asks this exact same question. Because if, as Paul has argued, we're saved by, by grace and not by works, if we're saved by our faith and not by what we do, then presumably the more we sin, the more grace there is. And Paul says, yeah, absolutely. And so it will, then we just go on sinning. And Paul says, in response to that, he says, may it never be. And the way he phrases that in Romans 6 verse 1 is to use the strongest negation that he could have used in the Greek language. The implication is, this is not even a possibility. You have completely misunderstood the entire point. The idea is, is that not that simply that sin is going to lead to our punishment and therefore we've got to sort of not be punished, but rather sin leads to our punishment because sin binds us. And what Christ has done is he set us free from sin. He set us free from sin. He's not just taken away the punishment for sinning, but he's freed us so that we don't have to go on sinning. This is why repentance is such a crucial concept for us to understand. If someone says, I'm going to come to Christ and and I'm going to get forgiveness from sins, but they've got no concept of repentance, then they're not getting forgiveness for anything. Because you can't simply say, well, you know, you know, I mean, it's kind of like saying, well, I'm, I'm going to rack up tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt because and, and I know that this guy's going to pay it all off for me. And then I can just keep racking up more and more and more debt. And I haven't got to worry about it because it's going to keep getting paid off. Whereas what Jesus is offering is not to be the one that pays off the debt, but the one who frees us from living in a way that accrues debt. Now, it's not either or, it's both and. And what is being said here in these verses is crucial that we understand. And I think he expresses it as well as I think any other verse of scripture. Apologies to the Apostle Paul. But I think that he he expresses this astonishingly well. He says, he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh. Okay, so the context is um, the flood wipes out everything in the past. And through that we're saved. 
And here, in, in suffering, Christ brings salvation. And in our suffering, Paul, uh, um, Peter's been saying, and through the, act, the public act of baptism, we're being saved from this life of compromise. And so what he's saying is, he's saying, look, if you go get baptized, and then you get persecution because you're a Christian, he says, you are blessed because what's happening is you are now going to live the rest of your life separate from the rest of the world. What's dead is gone. Now we'll have what's new. You're going to be separate from everyone, and you're going to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, the rest of your days in your body, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now we're back to where we started. If your goal in life is to fulfill your passions... Even if they're not ungodly passions. If that's your goal, then I believe you are misguided. I mean, let, let, let's, let's talk about it in the in senses, you know, we're going to talk in a moment about overt sin. But let's talk about it in the sense of just passions we might have that might be good passions. I would love, um, as a pastor, for the church to continue to grow. That's a passion. But if it comes to it, and there is a group of people in the church who need to have sin addressed, and I know that in addressing that sin, the church is going to split down, I'm going to lose half the people, I have still got to address the sin. Because I have to put the will of God, the commands of God, above my desires, no matter how godly they might be in and of themselves. God is not wanting us, you know, we go through our lives and we say, oh, you know, I'd love to do this for the Lord, and I'd love to do that for the Lord. And it's like, God who stands outside of time, he, he knows what he has planned for our lives. And here we are telling him, hey God, I'd like a bit of this, I'd like a bit of that. Wouldn't it be great if I, you'd love it if I did that, God? Wouldn't that bring glory to you? Oh, that would be great. And we're kind of here just directing God around. And so in that way, human passions, even seemingly religious and Christian and good and holy, can be in conflict with the will of God. Have you ever wondered... Some of the saints in the past. You know Charles Spurgeon? Everyone seems to know Spurgeon. Spurgeon was just a great man. Amazing quotes and stuff. For the most of the latter decade of his ministry, six months of the year, he wasn't in his church. He was in the south of France because he had so many physical and mental issues that he couldn't maintain his ministry for an entire year. And so in winter, when he was at his worst, he would go to where the sun was and just get away so he could be restored to come back and do another six months of ministry. What about Robert Murray McShane, dead in his 30s? He didn't God, wouldn't it have been so much better, God, if he'd have lived to 70? How much more he could have done? You know, there are so many great saints and you look at their lives and you say, but, but what if this and what if that and what if this and what if that? And we do the same with our lives. And we say, God, wouldn't it be better if this happened and that happened? I don't understand why God allows my family to endure the suffering that we've endured over the years. And I will often pray, Lord, 
we'd be able to serve you so much better if you just help with this and help with that. Wouldn't that be great, God? But you know, there's only one thing we need to hear at the end of the day. One thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. He's never going to turn around and say, you know, I think your way was best after all, Anthony. Wish I'd listened. He's, he has his will and he has his plan and he simply says, will you obey? For us, we have to decide. We have to decide this day what is more important to us, our passions or the will of God. That's what we have to decide. And through suffering, through suffering, God will show us what we desire more. He will show us what we desire more. When you take an orange and you cut it up and you put it in a citrus juicer, it destroys the orange. But you get juice. And it's orange juice. I know that seems really obvious, but it is orange juice. You don't juice an orange and get grapefruit juice. You don't juice an orange and get lemon juice. You get orange juice because it's an orange. Sounds really obvious. You think I've lost it at this point, don't you? The point I'm making is simply this. When you go through trials, you will see what was within you. No faking it. No talking it up. You will simply see what was there. And there's an opportunity for us to see. Because I will tell you frankly, the vast majority of us are far more concerned about human passions than we would care to admit. And God loves us so much that he will ensure that we suffer to expose our desire for comfort, to expose our unwillingness to suffer, and to expose the fact that in suffering, we quite frankly don't trust him. And we think that our way is better, and he should do it the way that we want it done, which invariably is a way that does not involve us going anywhere that would even have us close to sweating blood or giving our lives. We are prepared to do this for Jesus and do that for Jesus, but there's a line that just simply won't be crossed. We would never say that. We would never admit it. We wouldn't say it out loud normally. But suffering exposes it. And it's brutal. And I do, and I, I do not want this sermon to be the kind of sermon where anyone going through suffering somehow feels that the pastor is standing over them with a stick saying, you will care about yourself less. I want us to come alongside those who suffer and cry with them. Because it's horrible. Being, being put in a situation by God that shines a mirror on our hearts and exposes us for being the self-loving, self-preserving person that we really were all along is a horrible thing to have to go through. But it's utterly necessary. And if you've had it done to you, when you see someone else having it done to them, I hope you feel nothing but compassion and love. And you come alongside them and you help them and you ease their suffering in whatever ways you can but you just keep ensuring that they keep their eyes on Christ. 
that they don't compromise. And you lift them up in prayer and you hold them close and you let them feel the love of God through you as you walk through this together. This is the struggle. If we are suffering in the flesh, we've ceased from sin so that we live the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so we, 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 we say we're Christians, we get baptized, we, we make a declaration, and then life comes, and then we get to see what matters more to us. And I pray that it would be the will of God. And he explains this further in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, often when you have lists in uh, sermons, pastors will go through and explain every word in intricate detail. I think the list suffices pretty well by itself. I don't think I need to explain to you in great detail what these things are. But I will say a few things in passing. He's simply saying that when it comes to the point of salvation, of decision, of, of, of in the context of baptism, then... Then there is then a past. There is, there is a time where what was is now gone. And that was sufficient. You don't need to, to engage in those things anymore. It often amazes me how blind Christians are in this regard. That people can come even to a church like this and then they think it's okay to go off and to go drinking with their buddies and get drunk, and they think it's okay to kind of, you know, well, we're going to get married anyway, so it doesn't hurt to live together now, or to sleep together now, what have you. I mean, maybe you're not going off and you're, you know, having wild drinking parties and orgies and what have you, but, but Christians are astonishingly willing to compromise in so many of these areas. And it doesn't need me to, to beat the hammer on this one. I, I'm, you know, the Holy Spirit can do that sufficiently well himself. But... Um, I do think it's interesting here that he ends up this list. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and then lawless idolatry. That last phrase is a summary of what has gone before. Lawless, without regard to what is right and to what is wrong. Idolatry. Idolatry? Well, I may have, may have gotten drunk with my friends. I, 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 I'm, you know, we, we may be compromising sexually here, but I, I'm not going to worship another god. Well, that's exactly what you're doing. I think sometimes we look at the Old Testament idolatry and we, 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 we treat it like it's this completely remote thing from us. And when we look at them and we say, oh my goodness, they, they offered their children to Molech and they, they made sacrifices to Baal. What a bizarre and strange thing to do, that they, these ancient people and their strange beliefs. You know, we saw, we mentioned this the other week, but we saw at the Golden Globes a woman stand on stage with a golden idol in her hand saying, I was only able to do this because I killed my child. Hallelujah that we live in a place where I can do that. Molech is alive and well. And Baal? Baal was the god of harvest. 
Boaz had got a harvest whereby the, those who were Yahweh worshippers, the, the people of Israel, they'd be worshipping Yahweh, keeping all the sacrifices, keeping the commands, and then they'd be struggling. You know, the harvest hasn't been good the last few years. Well, Baal's the god of the harvest. Well, they're going to keep worshipping Yahweh. We're going to keep making sacrifices. We're going to keep observing the Day of Atonement. But you know, we need some help with the harvest. That's what Christians do the whole time. That we compromise our faith by saying that somehow we love Jesus, we're going to sing songs to Jesus, we're going to read our Bibles, we're going to go to church, but in this area of life, Jesus is insufficient. That, my friends, is the very definition of idolatry. When you think that Christ is insufficient for whatever area of compromise it is that you are pursuing and chasing after, then that is idolatry because as sure as, night follows, uh, as day follows night, you are going to end up finding something to fill that vacuum. That something other than Jesus will have to meet that need. Why? Because your passions are more important to you than the will of God. Lawless idolatry. And if you think that you won't ever do these things in this list in the full extreme, I can tell you, again, from having been a Christian for many decades, seen many friends go through, through all of this, that when you start to compromise, compromise always leads to further compromise. And it will astonish you how quickly genuine Christians can go from never being prepared to do step one to all the way to step ten. Because everything was in place beforehand. They would look at a list like this and say, oh, I'd never do such a thing. And But what they were prepared to do was to compromise their faith for the sake of their own comfort because human passion was more important to them than the will of God. And once you have made that decision, this stuff is easy. To decide this day. Is Christ enough? Is Christ the one that you will turn to for your harvest, even in the lean years? When you crave and you desire something, something that may, may be perfectly good and normal, when you, when you crave and, and desire to be loved, when you crave and you desire to, to be successful and, and to do various different things, and... and the heavens are silent and it's as if God is saying no. You will have to endure being unloved. You will have to endure being poor. You will have to endure, endure failing again and again. You will have to endure not getting the things that you want. Will you stand with Christ then? That's the question. Will you? And that's what Peter is saying here. To not do so is lawless idolatry. When we turn to others, then rights and wrongs go by the wayside. Now, carrying on this theme in verse 4, he talks about how they're surprised when you don't join them, and as a result of you not joining them, they malign you. And boy, is that true today. That is absolutely as true today as it ever has been. That you as a Christian, you know, just aren't going to fit in. My, my son went back to England and was working in a hotel and living on the, on the site. They had flats for the hotel. And a lot of the, most of the people there are his kind of age, early 20s. And, you know, 
they're all tight and they're all close friends and they all go out drinking every night. And he is, spends most evenings by himself in his room reading because he's not going to go and be part of them. What do you do? You just, you, you are going to, you're going to be maligned as being someone who is considered to be, you know, bigoted. You're someone who is, you know, and, and there are all these terminologies and names now given to us to shame us for our beliefs and to shame us for our unwillingness to engage in the things that others would engage in. That somehow if, if people use certain words, and it happens, I mean it works. There are people who call themselves Christians and they're called, they're called a bigot. Oh, I can't be called a bigot. Oh gosh, let me, let me kind of adjust my views suddenly, quickly. I mean it's ridiculous. But Peter says very clearly, you're not going to live the way that they live. You're not going to think that what they think is okay is okay. What they think is good is good. You're not going to think the same way as them, so you'll be maligned. You'll be spoken of negatively. Get used to it. It's there in Scripture. It shouldn't surprise us. We are going to be maligned if we don't live the way that they live, if we don't agree with what they say. And in many areas of life right now, people are... Society seems to be hell-bent, not just on getting... Um, not just on getting accepted, their sin accepted, but forcing others to agree with their assessment. It's going to be a difficult time coming up for Christians because the world is trying to make us bow the knee. It's trying to make us say what they want us to say, believe what they want us to believe. Be prepared to suffer and be prepared to be maligned. Why? Look at verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, this is the trouble when we take our time over these things. It's been a while since we dealt with the end of chapter 3, but of course, it's only a few sentences ago where he says, don't fear what they fear, but honor Christ as Lord, holy. Jesus Christ is the one you should fear. Why? Because he's going to judge the living and the dead. And they can malign us, and then we suffer at their hand. But ultimately, we're all going to face Christ. Ultimately, we're all going to be judged. And they who maligned us will be judged for maligning us. And they who sinned will be judged for their sin. And Christ will be proven right. And we can bow the knee before Christ now, or we can bow the knee when he comes back. But every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord, he is God, he is Yahweh, he is sovereign, he has the right to say this is right and this is wrong, he has the right to say live this way, don't live that way, he has the right to say you will go through that suffering, he has the right to say I'm going to take this away from you, because he is Lord, bow the knee. Four, verse six, this is why the gospel was preached. Even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is a weird verse, and particularly following the end of chapter 3 so soon, people sometimes link this together with the spirits in prison, but it's not the same thing at all. He says, look, the gospel was preached to those who are dead. That doesn't mean that the gospel was preached 
to people who have died, but rather that the gospel was preached to people, and those people it was preached to are now dead. That's what's being said, I think, here. So the gospel was preached to people, and the people who heard the gospel, they're now dead. In fact, the vast majority of human beings who've ever heard the gospel are now dead. The vast majority of people who heard the gospel and rejected the gospel are now dead. And again and again, I, you know, we look and we see people dying here and people dying there. And I'm just stunned by how suddenly life can be taken away. That people think they're going to have time. People think that, they, that, that, that life, this will happen and that will happen and eventually they'll get around to Jesus. But most people who heard the gospel are dead. And he says, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And I think the point here is this, if they're living in the spirit the way God does, that, mean, that certainly, I think, here implies a good outcome. What it's saying is, are you prepared to suffer in the flesh that you might live in the spirit? He, he's saying, are you prepared to go through stuff in this life because of the hope you have of the life to come? That's what he's been saying from chapter 1. He's been saying right from the very beginning, he says, um, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That we have this inheritance that is to come. And the gospel is preached, and it was preached to people that even though that gospel led to them suffering, even though that gospel led following their baptism to them being rejected, them being maligned, them being hurt, them being tarnished, all sorts of things happening to them, though it led to that, what else has it led to? It's led to life in the Spirit in Christ Jesus. It's led to life with God. It's led to life eternal. And so we need to decide, friends. We sang this morning as we arrived, those of you who were here at the beginning, we sang this morning, All I Have is Christ. And there's a line in that song that gets me every time. Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. Do you know the problem with worshipping? Is the music makes you just want to sing and, and it's good. But sometimes when you really think, I feel like, so, sorry, worship group, can you just hold back? Just give me two minutes right now. I just, got, I just got to get this straight in my head. I can't just sing, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. I've got to take a deep breath. I've got to think about what that might entail. I may have to cry. I've got to wrestle with the times that I failed in that area. I've got to repent at the times that I wanted it done my way, that I wasn't prepared to put aside my human passions for the will of God. I've got to understand everything that that entails. And I've got to bow the knee. And I've got to say it in my heart, meaning every single word of it. Father, take this life of mine 
bought with the precious blood of your son. Set free from the power of sin. And anything, 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 anything you want to do with me. Even that, even this, you do it. You're God. You're sovereign. May my knee bow. I can't do that in the space of a line, can you? But you see, the great thing about the music is it stays in our heads. And we can have those conversations with God whenever we wish. And I pray that we would. Pray that we would bow the knee. I'm going to end this morning by um, reading a little bit again from that hymn that I started with this morning. Congratulations to Brian Weigel. The hymn writer I've been reading from the last three Sundays is William Cooper. It's spelt Cowper, but it's pronounced Cooper. Brian didn't know that, so he taught him something. Um, William Cooper was the man who lived a life pretty much just as described in these verses. Drunken revelry. And then, during that time, he fell into a very, very deep depression. He tried to hang himself and the rope broke. He got put into, uh, very, he got, uh, put into various hospitals at various times because of this. And while he was in um, a mental hospital in St. Albans, he heard the gospel and he was saved. Hallelujah, a man like that saved. What a wonderful story. He came to develop a relationship with John Newton. John Newton, you know, don't you? The amazing grace guy, the, the, the slave trader. He had this life and, and, and he got saved and hallelujah, amazing grace. Completely different. Cooper, he stayed in depression till the day he died. He went through hell and back. And he made this friendship with John Newton and they were like chalk and cheese. They were just completely different. The one man heard the gospel and everything that was bad in his life went away and life was just so great from that point onwards. He was a man of just huge rejoicing. John Newton was just renowned for his joy. Everyone knew him for his joy. He, he, could, he could take the worst situation and make it sound good for the glory of God. He was just that kind of guy. And, and, and Cooper had multiple attempts on his life multiple times after his salvation. And he wrote a whole bunch of hymns. Newton took a job at a church in Olney, and, and John Newton said to uh, Cooper, why don't you come with me to where I'm going to be pastoring? And you know what we'll do? We'll sit down and we'll write hymns together. And they did that. And they wrote a bunch of hymns at Olney. This is the Olney hymn book. 200 plus hymns. Amazing Grace, you know. Cooper's most famous song was God Moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He wrote the most magnificent of hymns. And a man who lived a life of just immense suffering. If you ever get a chance to read any of his biographies, read it. Um, I listened to a sermon by John Piper, which I found on Spotify, of all places, that was a biography of, of William Cooper. I really, highly recommend reading a bit about his life. He had a very hard life. And listen to this again, that the man would say this in the midst of it. He says, I thirst 
but not as I once did, the vain delights of earth to share. Your wounds, Emmanuel, they all forbid that I should seek my pleasures there. It was the sight of thy dear cross that first weaned my soul from earthly things and taught me to esteem as dross the mirth of fools and the pomp of kings. Isn't that just magnificent? Let's pray. Father, may we see your glory at the cross of Christ. And may we see the worthlessness of the pleasures of this world that we give so much time and energy and effort to chasing. And may we this day, right now, May we bow the knee. May we choose your will over our desires. May we echo Christ at Gethsemane. Not your will be done. Not, sorry, not my will be done, but yours. We want that cup taken away from us. but yet not my will, but yours be done. Father, you've called us to suffer like our Savior in this life. May we trust you and may that suffering, may it bring to an end our sinful desires and may we commit ourselves fully, completely, to your will. Amen.